these feminist and gay theologians, after a while you start thinking, well, maybe they're right. You know, maybe a, a very loving, stable, homosexual relationship might be very beneficial. It's right to have one. In other words, they support the legalization of abortion. Now, I'm sure that could be argued from a biblical perspective. I'd just like to quote um, an article from the Daily Telegraph. It was in the paper about 12 months ago. It was written by a secular journalist, presumably non-Christian. And uh, the journalist says, Blowing in on the social change wind from Britain is an attack on that classic wedding moment when a father walks his daughter down the aisle. Church of England leaders last week announced that the act of giving away the bride is sexist because it implies she is the property of a man. So now in a pilot scheme in 800 English parishes, the bride and groom will walk down the aisle together, leaving daddy sitting in the pews. Now there's nothing particularly immoral about that, but let me just read a little bit more. Remember, this is a non-Christian writing. Then we hear that the Church of England wants to abandon its prohibition on living in sin and treat de facto unions as being as sacrosanct as actual marriages. A majority of Britain's Anglican diocesan bishops said at the weekend that the quality of the relationship is more important than its legal status and want priests to bestow blessings on couples living together. Christian people should recognize the realities of social change, Bishop Hereford told the Sunday Times. What's interesting about this passage is what this non-Christian journalist says now, makes a comment. This is all very well, but if you can't rely on churches to resist the fickle winds of social change and stand up for some basic principles, what is there to rebel against? Only the Pope is sticking with the script, still preaching unembarrassedly against divorce to the chagrin of many of his flock who fancy that tough talk is rooted in the past. You see, even non-Christians are amazed at how quickly Christian principles are crumbling. I've got another question here from Michael Card. Some of you may know him as a singer, a songwriter, evangelical, a non-Catholic. And he, he said this, True freedom comes only from submission. Modern Christians have nothing to submit to. Catholics at least have the Pope. But the Reformation is still the main force in Christianity in America. And as a result, everybody is a judge unto themselves. We're so free and easy with the Bible. People say it says something and nobody disagrees. We have this warped vision that people can say anything and if they claim it is from God, how do you argue with that? Well, we don't argue and that's the problem. You know, having a Pope is not such a bad idea. I, I presume Michael Card's still a Protestant but you never know, I guess he's be heading the right direction. So I've described a non-Christian and a non-Catholic both seeing the value of having a Pope, a, a person in authority over the church. But of course we live in an age when people don't want to have uh, anything to do with authority or institution, hierarchy, organised religion. I mean this is in the 1990s. I mean we're all intelligent, educated human beings. We can live our own lives. And of course people like that are also very educated in the scriptures and we have theologians promoting ideas like that as well. And many people will tell us that Jesus didn't establish a church as we know it today. Jesus had nothing to do with structure or, or authority. He was, just started a spontaneous movement like the hippie movement you know, of the 1960s or the New Age movement of the 1980s. Just all spontaneously 
started up. No visible leaders or recognised authorities. It just, you know, let it happen. Is that the way it was? I don't think so. And I, th and I'm, I can tell you there's overwhelming evidence that just the opposite is true. Jesus didn't allow the church just to evolve haphazardly after he was gone. He was conscious of what he was doing. Remember when he said to Peter, you know, on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. Jesus had a fixed intention. He was establishing the new Israel. That's why he deliberately chose 12 apostles, because the old Israel was on 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. That's why he chose, sent out those 70 elders. Remember Moses, the 70 elders under Mo Moses? Jesus was deliberately doing these things to show the parallel that he was establishing the new Israel. And we know that he trained the apostles for, uh, for this uh, church that he was building. He gave them powers and privileges not shared with others. He gave them instructions about how the church should be governed, what sacraments uh, should be used, and even, even how to discipline people in the church when they go astray. From its very beginning, the early church had a very centralised form of government in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, it tells us that everyone in the Christian community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that's just what Jesus commanded the apostles to do, you know, make disciples of all nations. In Acts 4, we see that the apostles directly controlled the church's finances. They collected large amounts of money and distributed it at their discretion. It was already an organised, if you like, they had an institution. In Acts 5, we read the story of the two people who deceived the apostles in the amount of money they were donating. And Peter almost speaks as though he's God's representative. He said to them, you have not lied to men, but to God. I mean, who did Peter think he was? Some kind of bishop? To talk like that. Then we read in um, Acts chapter 15, the ch there was a dispute in the church of Antioch, a big fight. Who do they go to to resolve it? The church of Jerusalem, who had pastoral responsibility over them. In Acts 16, we read that the decisions of the Jerusalem church are dispatched and enforced from city to city. It is also clear from the New Testament that there was a hierarchy. Like you only have to look at the island of Crete, Crete had about 90 towns in the first century AD. All the elders in the churches of Crete were under submission to Titus. We know that because in Titus 1.5 we see that Titus was commissioned to appoint elders in every church. Titus himself was under submission to Paul because it was he who commissioned him. And Paul, we you know, was, uh, recognized the authority of Peter because Paul went to Jerusalem to have his gospel confirmed by Peter. And he said, um, Paul said, that he, he took his gospel to Peter to have it confirmed so that all his work would not be in vain. If Peter did not accept it, then all his work would, be, would have been in vain. Okay. So basically, I don't believe Jesus left a, behind him a bunch of disorganised followers. You know, okay, I'm going. You guys can sort it out for yourselves how you're going to structure yourself. Jesus knew us far better than that. He knew how fickle we are, how easily we are swayed by every wind of doctrine by every, every smooth-talking preacher as, as what is happening today. In keeping with his promise not to leave us orphans, he gave us shepherds to nurture us and to teach us. And he said to the apostles, whoever accepts you accepts me. Now the distinction between 
clergy and laity, some people deny that any such distinction is made in the scriptures. Just want to quickly look at one reference, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 12. You don't have to look this up because I'm not going to wait for you to find it, but if you want to look it up. And it's when Jesus says, um, See that you're dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like men waiting for their master to return from the wedding feast, ready to open the door as soon as he comes and knocks. Happy those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And then he warns them, if, if you're not ready, you know, the consequences. And Peter asks a question. He says, Lord, do you mean this parable for us or for everyone? Now, of course, Jesus meant it for everyone. But Peter raises the distinction. Is this for us, the leaders, the clergy, or for everyone? Peter, um, since Peter raised this issue, Jesus goes on to say, what sort of steward or manager, it's a different Greek word here, it's um, a manager or an overseer, overseer of other servants, what sort of manager then is faithful and wise enough for the master to place him over his household to give them their allowances of food at the proper time? Happy that servant if his master's arrival finds him at this employment. I tell you truly, he will place him over everything he owns. And that, but then he says, um, but as for the servant who says to himself, my master is taking his time coming and sets about beating the men servants and the maids and eating and drinking and getting drunk, his master will come on a day he does not expect and at an hour he does not know. The master will cut him off and send him to the same fate as the unfaithful. Now the interesting point of that passage is, is that Jesus is saying the master has set up a leadership, a stewardship that will last till his second coming, until the master returns. That leadership will remain in place even though the steward may abuse their authority, abuse their power. Okay, flipping a few books of the Bible, I want to make reference to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. You don't have to look it up. It's when John, the visionary, sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And he sees that the new Jerusalem's wall, the, the city's walls are built on 12 foundation stones. And these foundation stones bear the names of the 12 apostles. Each stone had one apostle's names on it, name on it. Now the question I want to put to you, what the name of Judas Iscariot on one of those stones? And put up your hand if you think it was. No? Yes? Right. Well, I don't really know. The scripture doesn't tell us. <laughs> but I think it wasn't because if you read the Acts of the Apostles, Judas was not one of the twelve apostles. He wasn't one of them. What happened to Judas? Yeah, that's right. And what happened to his position? He was placed, replaced by another one. We read about that in Acts chapter 1, how Peter coordinates the election of the successor to Judas. And Peter... You notice that there was no debate. No one said, boy, this is unusual. We're electing a successor to one of us. They all accepted that as the normal thing to do. And Peter even quotes scripture to justify it. He quotes a psalm where it says, let another take his office. Now in the Greek, the word there is episkopos, which is where we get the word bishop. In fact, the King James Version translated as, let another take his bishopric. So what we're talking about here is the doctrine of apostolic succession that the apostle's authority could be passed on to a, a disciple who becomes like a bishop. And this doctrine wasn't invented by the Catholics 300 years after the apostles. It was there right from the beginning. And we have proof of that from the letter of Clement to Rome. 
Clement was a contemporary of the apostles and was Bishop of Rome, probably about third in succession from Peter. Now, I want to read the passage because not many people are familiar with this, but it's, it's such an important passage, so just bear with me. Now, the gospel was given to the apostles for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus the Christ was sent from God. That is to say, Christ received his commission from God and the apostles theirs from Christ. The order of these two events was in accordance with the will of God. So, uh, so thereafter, when the apostles had been given their instructions and all their doubts had been set at rest by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, they set out in the full assurance of the Holy Spirit to proclaim in the coming of God's kingdom. And as they went through the territories and townships preaching, they appointed their first converts after testing them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons for the believers of the future. This was in no way an innovation, for bishops and deacons had already been spoken of in Scripture long before that. There is a text that says, I will confirm their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith. It doesn't surprise us that Christian men entrusted by God with such a mission should have made these appointments. And then he goes on to say, Our apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be dissensions over the title of bishop. In their full knowledge of this, therefore, they proceeded to appoint the ministers I spoke of, and they went on to add an instruction that if these should fall asleep, other accredited persons should succeed them in their office. So the, the apostles therefore delegated their authority to successors who became known as bishops. Now there has been some debate about exactly when every church had its own bishop. And it's quite likely that perhaps many churches didn't. It would be like, if the comparison, it's like um, the community here establishing satellite clusters. The mother cluster, like, like Joe wouldn't immediately let it cut, say, Maryland's off as an independent community with the area pastor being totally on his own. So I imagine Paul and Timothy, as they founded churches, they held onto the reins for a little while until the church and the leaders came to some sort of maturity. And then eventually a presiding elder was appointed. But certainly by the end of the first century, it seems it was almost universal. Every church had its own monarchical bishop, that is one presiding elder. In fact, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was another contemporary of the apostles, he wrote in 107 AD that any church that does not have the threefold order of deacon, priest, and bishop is unworthy of the name of church. So he saw it as it was essential. Anyway, St. Ignatius is one of my favourite saints, of, or both of them, St. Ignatius Loyola, but this one too, Ignatius of Antioch. Um, he was a contemporary of the apostles. He was the bishop of the third largest city in the Roman Empire, that was Antioch. And it, his writings are beautiful. He wrote to seven churches on the way to his death in, in, uh, in Rome. He was thrown to the lions. Um, and tradition tells us, and I don't, you don't have to believe this, it may not be true, but that he was the child in the Gospels, that Jesus put the child in front of the apostles and said, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that may not be true, but it reflects the belief that he was, he knew the apostles. Okay, let's move on. Um, Christ therefore placed the government of the church upon the shoulders of the apostles and they passed that on to their successors. Now there was one apostle who seems to have had a particular greater degree of authority than the others. You know who that is? Peter, right, okay. Now, I know I don't have to tell you about the primacy of Peter in the New Testament, but it has been disputed. And I think it's worth just exploring it for a while because 
it really is amazing. Peter is named 195 times in the New Testament, 195 times. The next most frequently mentioned apostle is that of John, who's only mentioned 29 times. The other apostles, you know, they're about 15, 13, 7, etc. The New Testament lists the names of the 12 apostles four times. Peter is always first, Judas is always last. They were listed in accordance to the, in an order of honour. In fact, in Matthew's list, Peter is actually called the first, the Greek word protos, he is the first. Whenever Peter is mentioned together with the other apostles, his name is always put in the place of honour. And there's millions of references, but you read about Peter, James and John, you notice Peter is always mentioned first, Peter and John, and expressions like Peter and his companions, Peter and the rest, Peter and the apostles, Peter standing up with the eleven, just goes on and on. Sometimes in the New Testament, the context requires that the most important name is put last. For example, in Corinthians, Paul talks about the slogans that divided the church in Corinth. Some of people were saying, I am for Paul, I am for Apollo, I am for Cephas, which is a name for Peter, Aramaic word for rock, I am for Christ. Paul has placed the most important person last, the second most important person second last, that's Peter. Anyway, enough of that. You get the gist that everywhere Peter's mentioned, he seems to be in a league of his own. In 1 Corinthians 9.5, Paul talks about the rest of the apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas. Cephas, Peter, right? It's like Peter has to be mentioned separately for some reason. And again, when uh, the angels at the empty tomb tell the women that Jesus will meet him in Galilee, they say, the angel says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Now why do they mention Peter separately? Isn't he one of the disciples? Anyway. Um, interesting, at John 20, when John and Peter run to the tomb, Peter, John gets there first but waits for Peter. So Peter has the honour of entering the tomb first. Peter's first in a lot of things. He's the first... Um, to have seen the risen Christ, according to two scriptures. That's Luke 24, 34 and 1 Corinthians 15, 5. The risen Christ appeared to Peter first, alone. That's, don't hear that, do you? Peter was the first who preached to the Jews. He was the first to receive the Gentiles. He was the first to work a miracle in Christ's name. Now, there's two New Testament scriptures that show there was a special relationship between Peter and Jesus. One of those is the passage about the paying of the tribute, the half-shekel tax. Remember when uh, the, the tax collector says to Peter, does your master pay the half-shekel? And Peter says, yes, of course, and goes and tells Jesus, or Jesus actually knew already, and Jesus said, um, we don't really have to pay this tax, but so that we may not offend them, go and catch a fish in the lake and you'll find a coin in its mouth. A really bizarre story. Anyway, uh, but... Fulton Sheen, and Fulton Sheen's name was mentioned earlier this morning, he made the observation that there is no other place in the New Testament where Jesus unites himself with another human being through the use of the personal pronoun, we. That is Jesus and Peter. And St. John Chrysostom made the comment, you see the greatness of the honour? In reward for his faith, Jesus connected Peter with himself in the payment of the tribute. And it would seem that the greatness of the honour was not missed by the other apostles because immediately after this passage, they seem to have an argument about which of them was the greatest, which is typical of the apostles. And that brings us to another passage. And it's Luke 22, and this is the Last Supper. 
without having another argument about which was the greater. You know, I'm the best, I'm the greatest. Let me sit at your right hand, you know. What's interesting here is that Jesus does not deny that one of them is greater than the others. He said, well, you know, if you're like me, if you've got children and children are saying, you know, I'm, the be I'm better than he is, you know, um, mummy and daddy, do you love me more than the others? And I oh, know, do your kids ask these questions? <laughs> and of course, we'd say something, no, we love you all equally, you know, you've all got gifts and you might, you might be better than one in one thing, and, but you all complement one another. And Jesus could have said that, you know, you're all equal in God's eyes, but he doesn't say that. He just says, he who is the greater should behave as though he was the least. And he who is the chief or leader, that's what the Greek word means, should act as a servant. So Jesus doesn't deny it. In fact, I suspect that a few verses later, he actually identifies who the leader is. Because three verses below, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have recovered, strengthen your brethren. Now, you lose something here in the English because in the Greek, the word you is used in the plural in some places and singular in others. So I'll just read it differently. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you twelve, the twelve apostles, the plural, that he may sift you twelve as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, singular, you, that your faith, Simon, may not fail. And when you, Simon, have recovered, strengthen your brethren. St. Leo the Great made a comment on that passage, and he said, The danger from the temptation of fear was common to all the apostles, and all equally needed the divine protection, since the devil desired to dismay all, to crush all. And yet, a special care of Peter is undertaken by our Lord, and he prays especially for the faith of Peter, as if the state of the rest would be more sure if the mind of their chief were not conquered. In Peter, therefore, the fortitude of all is protected, and the help of divine grace is so ordered that the firmness which Christ has given to Peter is conferred through Peter on the apostles. It's a powerful verse. If you meditate on that, there's something there. You notice that Peter seems to be the one who always resolves disputes in the church or amongst the apostles. You know, when Jesus asked that question, who do people say I am and who do you say I am? Jesus, I believe, was deliberately creating theological confusion in the minds of the apostles. They didn't know. They didn't know. Well, they weren't sure. They heard people say that he was Elijah, he was John the Baptist, he was Jeremiah. But who resolved the issue was Peter. Then we'll go back to the passage Father Michael spoke of, uh, John chapter 6, about I am the bread of life unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Many of the disciples couldn't accept that and left him. And indeed the apostles once again were confused. There was theological confusion. What is Jesus talking about? Who resolves it? Peter. Peter expresses a definite commitment to the words of Christ. Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of life, of everlasting life. And then in the resurrection, Luke 24, when the women come bursting in the room and saying, the Lord is risen, we've seen an angel. What do the apostles, what's their reaction? They can't believe it. In Luke 24, 11, it says, and their words seem to them as idle tales, and they believe them not. But Luke immediately says, then arose Peter. 
Now, I, I know perhaps in Jewish culture the testimony of women didn't count for much, but if we just had three women burst through the door here screaming and telling us, we've just seen an angel, you'd think you'd pay some sort of attention. But no, they were confused again. But Luke says, Then arose Peter. And a few verses down, the apostles completely change face and say, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Peter. See, Peter seems to be the pivotal person who resolves issues. Again, in Acts chapter 1, the election of Judas, it is Peter who initiates the election and even determines the selection criteria, one who has been with us from the beginning. In Acts chapter 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, there's a big argument about whether to accept Gentiles or not. And I think it was quite a fiery argument. Luke says in verse 7, after there had been much disputing, much disputing, and then immediately says, Peter rose up. After there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said. Peter said his peace. Said, and then in verse 12, after Peter had spoken, verse 12 says, and then all the multitude kept silence. Okay, just whizzing along here. Um, let's talk about Peter's um, change of name. He was originally called Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Now you know in the Bible when God gives someone a new name, it reflects their position, uh, their purpose uh, that God has for their life. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, which I think means a prince of Yahweh, a prince before God. Um, Abram was changed to Abraham, which is father of a multitude. Now on two different occasions in the Gospel, Peter, um, Jesus tells Peter that his name is Rock. The first time is when Jesus first meets him, and that's in John 1, 42. Andrew says, Jesus, this is Simon. Jesus looks at him and says, you're Rock. And that was really unusual because nobody was called Rock in those days. Uh, <laughs> now, <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny there, but you see, when... when the angel Gabriel told Mary, you know, your baby's to be called Jesus. That wasn't really unusual. There's a lot of kids called Jesus in those days. And same with, with the angel told Zechariah, your son will be called John. That wasn't unusual. But Rock, Cephas, Petros, it was unheard of. In fact, it was almost blasphemous. And I'll come to that in a minute. Um, actually, we're running out of time, but we'll just keep going here. Uh, all right. Okay, the second time Jesus tells Simon that his name is Peter is the one we're most familiar with, and that's when Jesus asked that question, who do you say I am? Now, if you read the scripture carefully, that happened at a particular location in Palestine, or Israel, and Matthew tells us it was in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, why would Matthew bother to tell us that? Well, he bothers to tell us that because there's a significant geographical landmark there, which is quite well-known and obvious, and that is there is this huge rock. It's about 200 feet high, 100 feet long, and it's actually one of the foothills of Mount Hermon. And I've got a photo photograph of it. We might just put it on. I've never been to Israel, but not, um, I'd love to see this place. Anyway, this is this huge rock. And interestingly, it's where the Jordan River begins. It's the source of the Jordan, and there's a lot of cascading rivers, waterfalls and that, near this rock. And that cave there is a huge cave and had a very deep 
um, hole filled with water. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus says that there was no sounding line long enough to measure its depth. And up there at the mosque, you see a mosque in that photograph, but in the time of Jesus, there was a glittering marble temple built in honour of Caesar on that rock. And this cave was, was dedicated to the god of Pan. It was a temple of Pan. It was a place of evil. Uh, all sorts of uh, pagan rituals and orgies took place in there. It was a, f a fitting image of hell, if you like, the underworld. In fact, in English, the word panic comes from pan. So it was a really horrible place. Now, this place, interestingly, I don't want to waste too much time, but it's really interesting. Psalm 42 was written in this region. How do we know that? Because Psalm 42 says... Um, when my soul is downcast within me, I think of you from the land of Jordan and Hermon. That is Mount Hermon. This is the foothill of Mount Hermon. It's also where the source of the Jordan is. And the psalm talks about, uh, as a deer longs for running streams, so longs my soul for you, my God. Deep is calling to deep as your cataracts roar. All your waves, your breakers have rolled over me. And then in verse 9 of the psalm, I will say to God, my rock. I will say to God, my rock. See, in the Old Testament, only God was ever referred to as a rock. No human being. That's why it's very unusual for Peter to be called a rock. So for the psalmist, this huge mass of rock represented God. When Peter and the apostles and Jesus came along, for Jesus, it represented something slightly different. Now, um, as I said, uh, it would have been blasphemous. Jesus didn't actually use the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament for God. That's a different one. He, he used a word called kepha, or kaf in Hebrew. We get Cephas. And that's used twice in the Old Testament. And that's uh, two places in Job and Jeremiah. And I won't quote the, the scriptures, but both places it refers to a place of refuge, a place of shelter. It's a rock, it's a shelter. All the Hebrew words that share the same root as kaf have something to do with covering and protecting. Uh, the Hebrew word kifa means capstone or keystone. The Hebrew word kafis refers to the ridge beams and girders of a house which support the structure. The ideas of binding and fastening are also contained in the root meaning as well as those of expiating and forgiving. So you can see that picture was a powerful image of what Jesus was say, saying to Peter, I forgot to read the passage, but you know it. Uh, after Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter says, and I say to you, you are Petros, you are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of Hades shall never prevail against it. So in the time of Jesus, there was a temple built on top of the rock, and there was this hideous cavern, the underworld, um, down below. But Jesus said something further. He said to Peter, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. And he's referring to a passage in Isaiah 22, and I won't look it up because we're running out of time. But uh, in that passage, um, well, maybe I will look it up. It's worth it. If you want to look it up as well, uh, Isaiah 22. Yeah, okay. Fine. 
Okay, verse 19, I think. Um, this is a passage where, um, see, in the Old Testament, there was a position in the royal court, a prime minister, if you like, who was second to the king alone. Um, and this is an oracle about where one of these prime ministers is dismissed because of his infidelity and another one replaces him. Verse 19 says, I dismiss you from your office, I remove you from your post, and the same day I call up my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, I invest him with your robe, gird him with your sash, and trust him with your authority, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Should he open, no one shall close. Should he close, no one shall open. Jesus was obviously referring to this passage because he says to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be considered bind in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven. And to the apostles it would have been obvious what Jesus was saying, that Peter was like being appointed prime minister of the royal cabinet of the new Israel. Okay. Just skip a few things I was going to say. And then... Okay, that passage in Isaiah, that position, it was an intergenerational position. It was passed on from one man to the other. And we can sincerely believe that's what Jesus intended for Peter because that concept was not foreign in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus actually referred to the chair of Moses occupied by the Pharisees. That's the teaching authority of Moses passed on through the ages. And that's where we get the idea of the chair of Peter. Also in John chapter 11, verse 51... We see that whoever occupied the office of the Jewish high priest inherited a divinely appointed position which included the ability to prophesy. Remember the high priest says, it is greater that one man should die for the nation. And John immediately makes a comment, he did not say this in his own person, but as high priest. And Paul, the apostle, recognised had that honour for the Jewish high priest even when he was persecuted. Remember when he apologised after he had realised he just insulted the high priest? So the New Testament was familiar with this idea of intergenerational office, uh, this passing on through a line of successors. Did they believe the same about Peter's position of eminence, that there would be a successor? I think we can say with fairly strong confidence the answer is yes because, well, for me, for two reasons... The Gospels weren't written for the first generation of Christians. They were written for future generations. They weren't written until the apostles were quite elderly, perhaps even already dead. And secondly, the Gospels weren't just historical records. They just didn't record trivia. You know. They were written for theological purposes. They had a, um, a spiritual significance. They retained what was most important for future generations theologically. So why would they bother to emphasise so much the primacy of Peter in his lifetime if it had no bearing for the future. Obviously it does have bearing. Okay, in um, the Gospel of John, I'm coming to that question, okay, we accept Peter had a success, but who? How do we know who he is today? How is it tied to Rome? How do, why is the Bishop of Rome looked upon as Peter's successor? I think there's a subtle hint. Now, I can't prove this. You take it for what it's worth. There's a subtle hint in the Gospel of John where Jesus predicts the death of Peter and tells him, you'll be taken to a place you would rather not go. 
Now, the Gospel of John was already written after Jesus, uh, Peter had died. And so his readers would have known this was a reference to Rome. We also notice that in the scripture in the New Testament there is, I believe, a shift in the centralized government of the church from Jerusalem to Rome. You know, Luke's gospel begins and ends in the temple of Jerusalem. It begins with Zechariah in the temple and it ends with the disciples worshipping in the temple. He did that for a particular reason. And then his next book, The Acts of the Apostles, that begins in Jerusalem but ends in Rome. In fact, in Acts twenty three eleven Luke tells us that the Lord appeared to Paul and said to him, You have borne witness for me in Jerusalem. Now you must do the same in Rome. And the whole rest of the Acts is about virtually Paul, Paul's journey to Rome. And you notice Acts ends rather abruptly. It just talks about Paul being in Rome, teaching, and it, that's, the end of the, that's the end of the book. It's like the author dropped dead or something. Uh, either that's Luke or the Holy Spirit. Perhaps a subtle hint that the ministry of Paul continues today from the city of Rome. Now that's my poetic interpretation. Take it for what it's worth. Okay. But it, th from outside of the New Testament, we know that this is there's strong evidence this is what the early Christians believed, that the Bishop of Rome inherited the authority of Peter. And we can see this from, uh, again, the letter of Clement. Remember I mentioned Clement? He was a contemporary of the Apostles and was Bishop of Rome in the late first century. In, while he was uh, Bishop of Rome, a dispute emerged in the city of Corinth and Corinth appealed to Rome, surprisingly, for a resolution to adjudicate. Now, why did they appeal to Rome? Some people argue that John the Apostle may have still been alive. Why didn't they appeal to him? But they appealed to Rome and Rome sent a letter and resolved the issue. And... Clement seems to think that he's got some sort of authority to do this because he says, and I'll just quote one sentence here, For our part, we will entreat the creator of all things with heartfelt prayer and supplication that the full sum of his elect, as it has been numbered throughout the world, may ever be preserved intact. intact. Clement believed he had some sort of universal role. Uh, this is confirmed in a couple of other areas, but I'll skip you those. Clement certainly felt it was his duty to rebuke the Corinthian church, and he says this, Shameful, beloved, extremely shameful and unworthy of your training in Christ is the report that the well-established and ancient church of the Corinthians is in revolt against the presbyters. And then he calls them to obedience. If anyone disobey the things which have been said by him through us, let them know that they will involve themselves in transgression and in no small danger. You will afford us joy and gladness if, being obedient to the things which we have written through the Holy Spirit, you will root out the wicked passion of jealousy in accord with the plea for peace and concord which we have made in this letter. I mean, that's, they're words of authority. Okay. Um, Ignatius, St. Ignatius of Antioch, I mentioned that chapter 4. He was another contemporary. He wrote a letter to Rome on his way to the lions there. And he twice in his letter refers to the Roman church as holding the presidency. He also considers the Roman church to be filtered clear of every foreign stain. And this is reflected in the body of his letter. So all of his other letters, Ignatius, all of his other letters, he warns the churches about obedience to the bishop. He warns them of heresy, false teaching. But when he writes to Rome, he doesn't do that. He doesn't warn them. He just says... You are filtered clear of every foreign stain, of every heresy.
Ignatius also hints that the Roman church has a unique teaching authority, for he says, You have envied no one, but others you have taught. One other church father I'll mention, and that's St. Irenaeus, who was, if you like, the spiritual grandson of John the Apostle. Irenaeus was the disciple of Polycarp, who was the disciple of John the Apostle. Irenaeus was born in Asia Minor, that is in the East. He was familiar with the Eastern Church, but he travelled widely. He knew, the, he knew the Church and ended up being a bishop in France, in the West. He wrote this against um, some heretical groups. He says, We shall confound all those who, whatever manner, whether through self-satisfaction or vainglory, or through blindness and wicked opinion, assemble other than where it is proper, by pointing out here the succession of the bishops of the greatest and most ancient church known to all, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, that church which has the tradition and the faith which comes down to us after having been announced to men by the apostles. For with this church, because of its superior origin, all churches must agree, that is, all faithful in the whole world. And it is in her that the faithful everywhere have maintained the apostolic tradition. I want to just put another overhead up. This is a chart showing the succession of bishops of four ancient churches. You find this in David Curry's book, Born Fundamentalist, Born Again Catholic. I'll just... Just have a look at this list. I tried, it didn't come out too well on the overhead. I've tried to highlight the, the names of the bishops in green who were always orthodox. They never subscribed to any known heresy. And the ones in pink, but you can't see the pink, but you'll just have to imagine it. <laughs> They're the heretics. Or the heretics are the ones that have um, up here, see the AR? They're the Arians, those who um, denied the divinity of Christ. So here we have the list of bishops of Rome, Antioch, Alexandria and Constantinople. If the colours on the overhead turned out, you'd see that Antioch, Alexandria and Constantinople had quite a few heretical bishops. Rome, however, is all green. Even um, Protestant scholars, um, people, Josh McDowell, you read his book, he said... One of the reasons of um, Rome's preeminence in church history is that it never succumbed to heresy in the first 1,000 years. Turn that off now, thanks. Um, David Curry, if you ever have an opportunity to read his book, um, tells an excellent story to demonstrate how God somehow, in some mysterious way, preserved the Roman church from heresy when all else... I mean, everywhere else um, seems to be collapsing. In fact, you know, during the Arian heresy, 80% of the world's bishops succumbed. 80% of the church virtually became Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Anyway, people who don't like the idea of the Pope, and especially the, the idea that the Pope could be infallible, have tried very hard to search through history to find some evidence that a pope has taught heresy or whatever. And they've found a lot of bad stuff about the popes. There's no about it, doubt about that. I mean, the popes are infallible, but they're not impeccable. And there's... <laughs> and, uh, 
they've done a lot of bad things. Well, not, not a lot of bad, but some. You know. um, and they've come up with a lot of dirty laundry, so to speak, but could they find any false teaching? No. And, and you'd think they've got 2,000 years to pour through. You'd think they could find It'd be very easy to find something, but they can't. Um, they've tried to raise a few issues, but they're not valid. But one of the popes that tried to have a go at was um, Pope Vigilius, who lived in the um, 6th century. But as David Curry points out, he actually, his life actually demonstrates, not disproves, the idea of the gift of infallibility on the Bishop of Rome. And just, I'll just tell you this story. Vigilius was uh, the Pope's assistant in Rome, but he was a despicable character, really. He wanted to be Pope. Would you believe? Who would want a job like that? <laughs> and and, uh, and it, by providence, the Pope did die, and he was hoping, here's my chance, I'll be elected. But no, they elected somebody else. And again, he was filled with resentment. But at the same time, the uh, empire capital, the capital of the Roman Empire, was in Constantinople. And Emperor Theodora ruled with her husband. Now, Emperor Theodora was a heretic. She was a monophysite, uh, heretics who don't believe in the humanity of Jesus. He was, um, they don't say he was truly man. And she wanted to impose the monophysite heresy on the entire world. Heretical bishops. While Pope was there, he died. Some think he was poisoned. Now, Vigilius came with him. And after the Pope died, poisoned maybe, Vigilius secretly met the Empress and made an agreement with her that if she would force the Roman clergy to make him Pope, he will enforce the monophysite heresy upon the world, upon the church. And that was the deal. But before Vigilius could rush back to Rome, Rome had already elected a new Pope. So, so, what? <laughs> so once again, follow once again, <laughs> but um, not to be outdone, one of Theodora's generals actually arrested the new Pope, forced him into exile, and imposed Vigilius as the new Pope. And Vigilius started writing letters promoting and enforcing the monophysite heresy in the name of the Bishop of Rome. But he had one problem. He wasn't the real Pope, and he knew that. As long as uh, Severius, that was the other Pope, as long as he was still alive and had not resigned, he was the true Pope. So what he did, he ensured that this, the real Pope was starved to death in his exile. And he, he did. He died of starvation some 15 months later. Then the Roman clergy reluctantly installed Vigilius as the real Pope. Now this is a frightening moment in the Church's history. I might just finish the story in the words of David Curry. But God the Holy Spirit was working a most amazing change in Vigilius. Whereas before, as anti-pope, that is a false pope, he had been enthusiastically defending monophysite heresy, he now wrote the Empress a letter stating he could never teach monophysitism or support those who did. In fact, he did just the opposite. He actually endangered his life. He angered the Empress. He, um, the Empress um, sent soldiers. He was arrested, taken from Rome, and he never saw Rome again. He died. As David Curry says, he died a martyr. And he ends by saying, At no point after becoming the real Pope did Vigilius ever teach the heresy embraced by the Empress and most of the Eastern Church. Jesus had kept his promise. The gates of hell skulked away empty-handed, 
the trophy had eluded it once again. That's an amazing story. Um, just one last quotation, then I think I'll finish. I'll this, I just want to quote the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, or the former Archbishop of Canterbury, that's um, Robert Runcie. This is a few years ago, 1988. Um, actually, it's a newspaper article. I'll just read at the top here. Regarding unity with, Catholic, with Catholics, Archbishop Runcie said Anglicans had no intention of developing an alternative papacy. He said they want to deal with the existing structure and hopefully help in its continuing development and reform as a ministry of unity for all Christians. Referring to his visit to Assisi in 1986 at the invitation of Pope John Paul to join other religious leaders in praying for peace, the Archbishop said, whether we like it or not, there is only one church and one bishop who could have effectively convoked such an ecumenical gathering. At Assisi, I saw the vision of a new style of Petrine ministry. Thank you.